Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's great to see you, and it's always great to be together at uh, Sherwood Forest and at Clemens. Uh, We're in a new series entitled God Unexpected, and we're going to return there today and uh, look together at this God that uh, the Bible teaches us we can't expect because he is the God who, uh, who does things that are for us unimaginable and uh, is a God we cannot ourselves think up. Uh, we don't expect him because he is not what we would expect if we were creating God. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to uh, Micah chapter 1. We're going to return to Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Micah chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. You'll find that on page 776 in the worship Bibles provided for you as you came into the Sherwood Forest campus or as you have come into the Clemens campus, you'll find those Bibles underneath your chair or underneath the chair in front of you. Now, we've seen already in in this series that Micah here introduces himself as a prophet. He introduces himself for us as a man living in an age that we said was full of luxury, full of wealth, full of religion, and full of danger. He lived in a dangerous, troubled time. The bloodthirsty and hostile Assyrians were uh, uh, active in the region of Palestine, from Palestine down to the uh, Persian Gulf, taking over kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and they were beginning to threaten the northern kingdom of Israel. And so these were uncertain times, abundant times, and at the same time, uncertain times. And with this situation and into this situation, God sends Micah, and he sends Micah with a message for the world and for his own people. His opening message is is what we would call a divine oracle. This opening message takes the form of a divine lawsuit where God appears as judge, plaintiff, witness, and prosecutor. And with that in mind, I want to take you again to Micah chapter 1, and let's look at that passage one more time. He says, beginning in verse 2, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, in his holy temple. Here we have the the universal summons to court. God is calling the world to court to stand trial. Next, notice, we have an announcement of the judges coming and its dramatic consequences. He says, verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Here are the charges being made. And as the Lord now becomes both prosecutor and witness, what is the transgression of Jacob? He says, well, well, here's the evidence. Is it not Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and how it is conducting its life? Is it not the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, and the way it is living out its cultural life? Finally, God, as judge, delivers his decision and his judgment. He says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, And I will pour down her stones into the valley. I'll uncover her foundations. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. 
For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them into the fee of a prostitute. They shall return. In other words, in other words, Israel, both north and south, has been incredibly, extraordinarily unfaithful to the God that they were pledged to live for and honor with their lives. Micah ends this section for us in verses 8 and 9 with his own personal response to all that God has said that he's going to do in and to Samaria. He says, for this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. In other words, I'll take off my outer cloak. I'll take off my shoes. I will put on the signs of mourning, of of weeping. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound, the wound of God's people, is incurable. And it has come all the way now to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So what is significant for, for Micah's first hearers and for us is that God reveals here as he opens up this letter who he is, what he is like, and what he's ultimately about in this world, what ultimately concerns him, what ultimately troubles him. But he also shows us how easily and how quickly we can lose him as the God that he is. We can lose him even though we have him. Why? Because, quite frankly, the God that he is, at the, in the end, is not, we said, the God that we want. And so, having looked last week at how God gets lost to us, this week I want to speak to you about how the God who is lost often to us, how the God who gets lost is the God who can be both found and restored in a personal relationship with him, how he can be restored again. Now, finding God, of course, is a a challenge, one that we've seen is made even greater by the fact that there are multiple versions of God at work and offered to us both in our nation and in the world. The problems made even greater in the situation with Micah and God's people in the 8th century when they assumed that the God they were worshiping was the God that truly is. Not realizing, as Micah says in verse 5, their transgressions and sin, their rebellion and their departure from God's ways for life uh, had effectively caused them to do three things. They had begun to neglect who God said he was, then they rejected who God said he was, and then thirdly, they took the step of remaking God as they wanted him to be. They remade him as a God to uh, suit their own preferences. And so the religious sins of idol worship and religious prostitution performed under the guise of worshiping a new and improved God of Israel. All of this, despite, as we said, the fact that God had revealed himself to his people as the great I am, the I am that I am, the I will be what I will be, the God who doesn't change, the God who determines his own character, the God who determines his own direction, the God who makes his own choices, this God who doesn't change, who will not be changed, who will not be improved upon, which means ultimately that you and I, we don't get a choice about who God is, and we don't get a choice about what God is like. That is the, the, the thrust of this announcement of God, that my name is Yahweh. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. Now, the fact that God said, this is who I am, never stopped us from trying to remake him, which is exactly what we do. It it isn't unusual then for us to realize that we need God to live, especially when we realize uh, that uh, uh, life without him is empty. It's, It's not unusual. Most of humanity believes in God. It's not unusual to see us, to find us seeking for him 
knowing that we've lost him, needing to find him, but still wanting to find him the way we want him. Several years ago, Eric Weiner, who is a journalist, wrote a book entitled, Man Seeks God, My Flirtations with the Divine. He wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled, Americans Undecided About God. And in that op-ed piece, he describes his own journey of finding a God he lost, needing him, and then looking, trying to find him. Now, uh, uh, Weiner has no religious affiliation, and he admits that before a particular season in his life, he called those who believed in God suckers, fools, idiots. But after he had a health scare about midlife, it created a crisis of faith and a need for God, and, and uh, at least a, a need to try to find God. And as he writes, he admits that he hasn't found God, but he hopes to someday. And he says that for him, it really doesn't matter whether a particular religion or whether a particular God is true. What, what matters for him is whether the religion works. And so he has dabbled here and dabbled there. And his standards for, for the God that he's seeking are, are these. He, he says, I, I want a God and I want a religion that will make me a better person, that, that will make me more loving, that will make me less angry. If I can find a religion that will make me more loving and less angry, then that's the religion for me. That, that's the religion that will be necessarily good and, and by extension true. And we, uh, uh, Weiner adds that God is looking for, or that the God he is looking for is very specific. He is a God who is fun. He is a God who is never angry. He says, and I appreciate his honesty, he says he is a God who never judges. He says the God I'm looking for is more like the Dalai Lama who can laugh and laugh well as uh, we live out our lives. And then he tells us, he does the most extraordinary thing. He says, I'm looking for God. I haven't found him yet. But then he tells us in the article exactly who God is. And he says, and I quote, God is not an exclamation mark. God is a semicolon. And then he explains what he means. He says, God is not a God. The God that is, is not a God who gives commands, who gives orders, who gives directives. But he is a God who is a semicolon. What he does is he connects people to people. He unites people. And he says, he unites people with human grace, with, with grace for each other, with favor for each other. I'll know that I've found God when I've found this kind of God. And then he laments, and I find this interesting as well. He says, somewhere along the way, we've lost sight of this. We've lost God. So Weiner uh, rightly confesses that we've all lost God, but but he means by that the God he's looking for, the semicolon God who unites all people in laughter and grace for each other and never condemns anyone for anything. And quite honestly, that's a very attractive God. He has a good sense of humor and, and uh, uh, you don't need to fear him because he's never judging. The problem with Weiner's God is that his God can't really deal with shootings at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. His God can't deal with evil. When you, when you have that kind of God, what you have is a God who's laughing and joking at the tragic shooting of, of young people in a college classroom. You, 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 you have nothing to say 
to the family of the young people who were killed. And if the measure of your God is that he makes you happy and uh, uh, makes you better and, 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 and creates a world where you're never angry, your God is going to fail you because if you lose your son or daughter in a tragedy like that, if you have a God who never judges, who never condemns wrong, who never confronts evil, you will wind up perpetually angry. There will be no justice. There will be no right in the world. You will have nothing to say to Riley Howell's family. And you will have no way to explain uh, Tristan Terrell. So what is his solution for, for this dilemma? Well, interestingly enough, he insists that we need a Steve Jobs of religion. He says to someone who can invent not a, not a new religion, but a new way of being religious. And he says, and I quote, like Mr. Jobs' creations, it would be a straightforward, unencumbered, and absolutely intuitive kind of religion and kind of God. So religion and presumably God can be redesigned. God would be more like the iPhone. God would be simple. God would come with no user manual. No user manual. He would be easy to use just the way you want to. Use him in whatever way that works for you and your way of doing life. So we just need to redesign him. What, what is my point? I, 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 don't, I don't in any way uh, want to uh, mock uh, Eric Weiner, but I do want to question the thinking. And I want to warn us as well that we do some very similar things, but we use religious language to cover it up. If we're not careful, we too can redesign God. John Stone Street of the uh, Colson Center aptly comments on the state of religion in America saying this, if there were a, a, a creed, a religious creed in the United States today, it would be this, I believe in God the Father Almighty who always supports my feelings. Who always supports my feelings. Who is what I want him to be. Who loves what I love and hates what I and as we saw last week, the book of Micah shows us that this isn't a new religious problem made in the image of God to love and serve God. Humanity has perpetually remade God in its own image so that God loves and serves uh, them. And in this way, we human beings lose the God it is, that is. And so having seen that already, here's what I want to advance today. I want to ask the question, how can a lost God be found and restored? How can a lost God be found and restored? And we've seen that in our passage, Micah answers and shows us how God is lost, then how a lost God is found, and then finally how a found God can be and is restored. And because we've looked at the first, I want us to go on and look at the second and the third this morning. Let's begin there as we continue our study through this prophetic word of Micah. Let's look first of all at how a lost God is found. For behold, uh, Micah says, verse 3, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this for the transgression, because of the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression? What are the sins? Are they not Samaria? Are they not Jerusalem? Micah is showing initially why it is that all the nations need to be, pay attention and hear what Yahweh has to say. What, what, why is it? He is coming. He is coming out. He is coming down to tread upon the high places of the earth. 
And so we have this, this powerful picture of God coming in his role as plaintiff. He knows, uh, uh, he, he shows himself as the God who knows everything. He sees everything. He hears everything. He remembers everything. Nothing gets past him. He shows himself in his role as prosecutor, the God who has the right and the God who has the concern to challenge those who do wrong. He defends what is right. He defends what is good and true for all. No wrong fails to matter to him. In his role as judge, he shows himself to be the God with the wisdom and the authority to reward or condemn fairly. Life's final rewards and Punishments are always equal to what is deserved because of who God is. He is fair. He is uh, actually fairer than we, we want him to be. He is actually fairer than we want him to be. In his coming as witness and prosecutor and judge, he's finally revealed as the God who has ultimate dominion over all peoples and all things. His powerful presence, one commenter says, has a seismic effect upon the stable world of nature. The mountains melt at the intense heat of his anger. His heavy tread splits the valleys. The landscape melts and runs away like uh, fast-flowing water. This is not the, the weak, timid God that some uh, actually believe in, but this is also not the God that most of us want. He is absolutely terrifying. He is absolutely terrifying. And we don't like the idea of a terrified God, a terrifying God. This, this is anything but uh, Weiner's semicolon God. This is an irresistible God with irresistible power coming to address wrong and bring justice. If you were here last week, you'll remember that verses 2, 3, and 4 would have found Micah's original audience applauding, saying, that's right, that's my God. He's coming. This great universal God coming in power, coming in victory to hold the nations accountable. That fits the God I worship. So call all the nations together, Lord. Let them have it. But then verses 5, 6, and 7 take place, and suddenly everything's gone sideways, and God becomes God unexpected for them, the very first people. He calls to stand account are his own people. It isn't the Assyrians and their bloodthirsty ways. It is the Judeans and the Sumerians and God's own people. And they are the first who are charged with grave crimes against God. Why? Because God has gotten lost. And he's gotten lost to his own people as they rebelled and got free of him as he showed himself to be, as they neglected his word and went on their own way, remaking him into an idol god of their own preference. So watch this. Having mixed worship and reshaped their God, what does God do in response? I want you to see this. Don't miss this. God comes to them as he is. He speaks as only he can speak. He delivers charges as only he can deliver charges. He gives judgments as only he can give judgments. He, he, he hands down charges and condemnations that fit his character, but they don't fit the people's expectations of who he is or what he should be like. Now watch. Our passage as a consequence shows us something that we must not miss. The God that we can neglect, the God that we can reject, the God that we can try to reshape and very often do is a God that can be lost, but he is a God who will not stay lost. Sooner or later, he is always found. And he's found, watch now, don't miss this, he's found not because we go looking for him first, but because sooner or later, he comes looking for us. 
And here God has symbolically gathered the nations to stand before him and watch all of this so that they will see and own how serious he is about his own place as God, about the welfare and well-being of his, of his human creation. And so he makes an example before the world of his own people. Those who knew him best, those who got to hear him say first and clearest, I am that I am. I will be what I will be. He does this so that the, the nations might know that Israel's God is the God of the universe to whom everyone is accountable, even if Israel doesn't live as it should. So in discovering himself to them, God is finding those who have lost him, confronting, holding them accountable, and the way he does it is with himself. He comes himself so that he is seen as he really is, and those to whom he comes have every opportunity in seeing him as he is to see themselves as they really are. And this is the pattern that God shows in his word time and time again as he deals with his people who have lost him. Initially, he finds those who have lost him so that they might find him again and as the God of life and the God of love he is rather than as the God they prefer him to be. And what we see pictured here in Micah 1 is, is God's final step. It is never God's first step. And what Micah doesn't show us is that God has come to his people over and over and over again. He has come again and again and again. And he has said, this is who I am. I love you. This is who I am. I am holy. I am holy love. I am loving holiness. This is who I am. I don't want you to be separated from me. I want you to be close to me. I, I, I want you to do life with me. You were created for me. You will never be satisfied until you have me at the very center of who you are. And lovingly and clearly and intentionally, strongly, God invited his unfaithful people to return to him as he is over and over again, but eventually their pattern of neglecting and rejecting and remaking, of neglecting and rejecting and remaking, brought God to the point of the judgment we see here. But for us, the point is this. The lost God is found by us when he comes to us and finds us first. And when he comes, he offers himself to us as he is. He calls us back to himself by calling us to seek him, promising that as we seek him who has found us, we will find him again. The God that we have all lost and the God that we're tempted to keep losing is the God who refuses to stay lost. And we can neglect him, reject him, and remake him, but we cannot keep him that way. He will not. Be forever neglected. He will not be forever rejected. He will not be forever remade. This is the God who refuses to stay lost. And he keeps coming. This, this, this singular truth is found in Old Testament and New Testament. It has contained within it a serious warning and the greatest of promises. Christ is coming, and there will be a final day of judgment. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed to man once to die. And after that comes judgment. Romans 14 says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, Paul says, will give an account of himself to God. 
Jesus also gives us a similar warning in John 5. Don't marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. But he also offers a promise coming from this truth as well. He goes on and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, critical phrase, believes him, believes him, believes him as he is, as he has revealed himself to be. Whoever believes him, whoever takes him as he presents himself to be, that person, that person has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has already passed from death to, not, to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man." The God who will not stay lost is the God who is at the heart of the gospel. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Listen, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And again in Romans 5, for while we were still weak at the right right time, Christ came and he died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God in Christ? The lost God came, looking for us to save us rather than condemn us. And this is the, this is the beautiful, moving, unexpected part of the gospel. Watch. The God who is rightly judge of the universe and rightly angry with sin and evil and the injustice that comes from it and the pain that comes from it. This God who is judge and prosecutor and witness for the prosecution This God who delivers the verdict of death for sin is also the same God who made himself in his son the one who took our guilty verdict in our Now, when I look at that picture of the God that is, the God of Eric Weiner who laughs and judges no one and lets us get away with whatever we choose to do, is not a God that loves like the God that is, is an extraordinary God of love.
Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. As he really is. Not as you want him to be, but as he really is. Hard on sin. Gentle and loving towards sinners. With a heart great enough to take every sin and failure of ours, place them on himself. A love deep enough to take our place on the cross. He is the way that a lost God is found. Perhaps you would say to me this morning, you would say to me, Pastor, I know that already. Perhaps you would say to me, Pastor, I believe that already. But here is my question to you. Are you truly living that daily? Israel had a firm and clear sense that she was worshiping Yahweh when she wasn't. And if we are not careful, we will make the same mistake. You say, well, how might I know if I'm making that kind of mistake? Let me tell you. When you're sitting under the preaching of the Word of God and God's Spirit comes and He says to you, you're neglecting me right here. Or He says to you, you're rejecting me right here. This is a part of me that you don't like, want, or prefer, and you're resisting. When the Spirit of God comes and says, you have remade me, the God you're worshiping, I'm not the God you're following. When you're sitting under the preaching of God's Word and the Spirit of God comes and begins to convict you, you will know, you will know, you will know. The chances are very good when you say no to Him, when He calls you to make a change, when He points out an area in your life If we're not careful, we can slip into the habit of saying, oh, no, oh, no, God could not be speaking to me. That is not all that serious. I don't have to offer forgiveness. I don't need to make that right. You, you, you called me to steward my resources for more than me, but... I won't do it because I need everything that you've given me to satisfy what I need. I won't deal with that jealousy because I'm justified. I won't deal with that envy because I'm right in that. And I know I habitually don't quite tell the truth, but that's what you've got to do to live in this world. And the God that I worship, he understands that. There are people I refuse to love. There are people I refuse to help. There are people I detest. And God has come to me again and again and again, and I've said, no, no, no. I will neglect your call. I will reject your insistence on my holiness. I will remake you.
to the point where my heart doesn't really feel you call me anymore. There will be some in our services today who will come right to this very point, and you will feel like getting up and running out of the service because you will feel so uncomfortable. But I have to say to you, in my personal experience, when the God who is genuinely comes, He doesn't first make me comfortable. He only makes me secondly comfortable. First, He makes me uncomfortable with my sin and where I am. And it's only as I own my neglect of him or my rejection of him and my remaking of him that suddenly all of life settles back down with the God who is at the center of my life once again. Then I know comfort. Then I know peace. Notice with me finally here how a found God is ultimately restored. For all of this, Micah says, verse 8, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable. And this wound, what is this wound? It is this perpetual neglect, rejection, and remaking of God, of which the people will not repent. They will not yield as God has come again and again and again. This wound is now incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, Jerusalem. And this is Micah's then here in these two verses. Micah's personal response to God's message of destruction that's coming. And it's significant for two reasons. Because first, Micah models for us the heart of God toward his people. I can, I can hear Jesus even now as he's approaching Jerusalem before his death on the cross. Do you remember? Weeping for Jerusalem. He, because they would not turn. They would not yield. They would not listen. They would not bend. They would not bow. They would not give in. This is the same, same attitude. This is the same spirit. He's modeling the heart of God who, who must now bring this judgment on his own stubborn people. He grieves the destruction that's coming in spite of the fact that he knows God's people deserve it. He grieves. He weeps. But he does a second thing. Micah not only models God's heart for us in, in the end here, but Micah models the only re appropriate response of God's people to God when he does come. Mourning, brokenness, Grief over sin. Grief over its costs and its consequences. Weeping for the sin, the incurable wound that he sees. This is not... Uh, This is not popular preaching. This is, this is not a popular word. This is not what we want to hear. But in the economy of the God that is, sin is so very serious that when you begin to see it in your own life, it will make you weep. 
it will break you. It will tear down every pretense to pride. And it will move you, it will compel you to begin to cry out to him and say, Oh God, I am a sinner. And I see again how desperately I need a Savior. And it's when God's people live seeing God as He is and seeing sin as it is and seeing themselves as they are that something amazing happens. They begin to see not only God as He is and sin as it is and themselves as they are, but they begin to see other people as they really are. And suddenly, instead of being judgmental and harsh with those that we see are trapped in sin because of neglect, because they've rejected God, because they've remade him to be something other than what he reveals himself to be, instead of feeling a sense of of proud anger toward them and hostility toward them, suddenly we begin to have a real passion and burden for those broken by their own sin and having lost God, trying desperately to find their way to a God that they would prefer. I will tell you something that I believe with all my heart. I believe that a portion of the hostility that our culture feels toward followers of Jesus is coming at us because in the final analysis we have been proud and we have been harsh and we have been judgmental when we should have been weeping with broken hearts for what sin and evil have done to us first and done to others. And as long as we remain a people who will not hear God when He speaks to us at invitation times, as long as we remain a people who will not hear God when His Word is open before us on a Wednesday morning and He calls us to take a step that is very uncomfortable for us, as long as we remain that kind of people, we will not take our sin seriously and we will go to one of two extremes with the sins of others. We will simply accept them and say it's not a problem that God is wrong about sin, sin will not do anyone damage, or we will go to the other extreme and take the the role of a self-righteous Pharisee and condemn all the other sins we see in others so that it will make us feel better about ourselves. The Bible tells us plainly, we love, we have the capacity to love God, each other in the body of Christ, and the people we find in our world only because we've come to realize that in Christ on the cross, He first loved us.
Father God, in this place, we, um, we have a heavy word. We have a, a, a difficult word. It was heavy and it was difficult in Micah's day. It is heavy and it is difficult in our day. But heavy and difficult words, as they come from you, are helpful and life-giving words if we will receive them. Father, in this room today, there are men and women to whom you've come again and again and again with clarity, with strength, with love, with mercy, with grace, men and women who belong to you that you have said again and again, this is wrong, this must be made right, this should not be in your life, it needs to be removed. You are to be holy as I am holy, you are to be loving as I am loving, you are to be merciful as I am merciful, you are to be gracious as I am gracious, you are to be Jesus. Reflecting the Savior who came for you. And Lord God, the honest truth is, many have been the times when we did not listen. And the reality could very well be as a consequence of that, that even as we sit here today, we are not worshiping the God that is, but we are worshiping a God whom out of neglect of you and rejection of you, a God that we have made who fits our preference, that we call Jesus, that we call our Father, that we call the Holy Spirit who is a God that does not truly exist because he is a God of our own making. Oh God. Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus, help us in this day to hear you as you have come to us and said, you're neglecting me. You're rejecting me. You're remaking me. And I'm coming out of love to you call you back to myself. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. For Jesus' sake, I ask it. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.